This podcast episode is brought to you by Iron Source. Iron Source are not a spinach-based nutrition company, as their name might suggest, but are actually a game tech company which builds technologies that help you guys take your games to the next level. The company is developing the leading growth engine for mobile games, offering a robust monetization management platform and data-driven user acquisition platform. What sets IronSource apart is their ability to close the monetization and marketing loop to help developers supercharge growth in a super efficient way. So whether you're looking to drive revenue or to scale your audience smartly and ROI positively, IronSource is a perfect partner for you. We here at Deconstructor of Fun are giant fans of IronSource because it's truly a growth platform that a developer of all sizes can leverage. So we suggest that you head on over to ironsource.com, ironsrc.com, and check out the platform for yourself. Thanks. This podcast episode is also brought to you by AppsFlyer. Most of you are familiar with AppsFlyer. It's perhaps the best attribution platform on mobile, a foundation for your marketing tech stack, giving you all the tools to drive marketing success. AppsFlyer allows comprehensive measurement and analytics that help you to optimize the end-to-end player journey from acquisition to retention, from ROI to LTV. In practice, this means filtering cohorts of installs and then retargeting those cohorts with personalized experience based on engagement and in-app events. AppsFlyer also offers super robust fraud protection, making sure you're not paying for bogus traffic. Playrix, Tencent, Playtika, Roblox, Square Enix, and Huge are among the many games companies that all use AppsFlyer to boost their business. Go to appsflyer.com and get yourself attribution data you can trust. Thanks. Hey everybody, welcome to Twig89. Today we have a lot of folks with us today, including a special guest, but we have myself, Joe Kim, Eric Kress, Adam Telfer, the Mishka Katkoff, and we have a legend in the industry, Emily Greer, who was a founder of Congregate, who also started a new game studio. But Emily, actually, why, why don't I have you just say a few quick words in terms of your background? Yeah, um, I started off, uh, I spent 10 years in uh, e-commerce and catalogs doing data science before it was called data science, and then moved over to games. So to start Congregate and uh, with my brother and uh, was lucky enough because we were building a platform to have like the most amazing data set ever uh, to play with. And that I think is how I really got started in the industry and, and people know me. I left Congregate a year ago to start a new studio called Double Loop Games. Um, that is a mobile studio focused on making making games for what most people call the casual audience, but I hate to call it the casual audience because when you play an hour a day, that's a total misnomer, but uh, that's, that's what I'm working on now. Great. In the articles we'll be covering today, first, abuse in the industry isn't down to a few bad apples. Second, iOS 14 IDFA is not dead yet, but it's definitely on life support. Third, former PlayStation boss says AAA game development is unsustainable. Fourth, Nintendo chills mobile ambitions after Animal Crossing success. And finally, in the news I was most excited about, Pokemon Unite could open competitive gaming to a whole new audience. What's up, guys? We've got so many people on today. I'm pretty excited about our podcast today. Any news? This is like your battle, this is like your battle pass hangout thing <laughs> so was, much value so much value which, all in one yeah. podcast <laughs> with much less value but the same thing <laughs> yeah yeah all, all right. right so let's get into some quick updates so first one is the acquisition of ready at dom by facebook oculus 
Um, so Ready at Dawn is a former Naughty Dog team. Um, it actually was making exclusives and ports for Sony um, way back in the day, um, mostly like PSP games. They also, their big hit was The Order 1886, which was a PS4 exclusive. Uh, since 2017, they shifted to start making VR games for Oculus and Facebook. And they've always been pushing this kind of like low 24 frames per second, very cinematic content uh, and are a very talented team for very immersive movie games, as I would call them. Um, but typically they can really scale beyond that five to 10 hour experience, which is why VR is a far better fit for them. And I think the key game that kind of like broke out that studio was Lone Echo, their VR hit, which reached a 89 Metacritic um, and then allowed them to launch, I think it was Echo Arena, which was a free Oculus game, and they're working on Lone Echo 2 now. Um, so it's clear that this deal was mainly just Facebook locking down one of Oculus's key content providers for their VR platform. Um, Call of Duty Mobile, uh, second update, um, definitely starting to take off. So uh, since COVID, uh, since March, you've really seen an increase in engagement um, as seen through their daily revenue. Um, monetization overall has really improved for them. Um, they've now reached roughly 244 million downloads and 235 million in revenue, uh, roughly hitting about a 96 RPI, and that's globally blended. Um, to the point that number one, my bet with Eric is now over. I've won, I get the stake whenever the next conference is <laughs> i guess in two years i might get a steak uh, yeah. yeah they won't even let us americans up into canada anymore right so we're, we're yep. kind of hosed dude it's gonna be years <laughs> virtual steak i guess i don't know yeah. um but it's made over 200 million in revenue uh but uh you know i can't gloat too much my deconstructive fund prediction was wrong so i said it would make less than 230 in its launch year um but it did not get this right so huge kudos to that team they've managed to turn around that that franchise and kind of use that covid bump um to really see some success and i think like what happened covid obviously um, but since season four, they've really stepped up their game in terms of the cosmetics that they're offering, which I think was a good transition. Um, and even since the beginning, the retention season over season has been strong. You've seen this through the spikes of their um, uh, revenue on things like Sensor Tower. Um, and their IP, RPI has been growing steadily in line with PUBG Mobile's curve. So PUBG Mobile reached about a buck after one year and COD Mobile actually just crossed this barrier after about eight months. Um, so those are all good signs and just another kind of um, warning sign when looking at RPI that some of these curves just take a lot longer to reach their maximum. Um, and over time, they're launching better and better cosmetics. And I think like the big thing, a lot crazier cosmetics. In the beginning, they were kind of sticking to the theme, but now next season is going to be the Wild West season. So getting closer and closer to Fortnite than um, say modern military. And I think this is just kind of proving the come, stay, pay model of Tencent, that they really try to drive for cosmetic economies, that they retain players as best as possible, and then they slowly increase um, the power of monetization. And I think the big thing is making sure that cosmetics aren't, say, overpowered to begin with. And if you think of it somewhat like managing inflation for a mobile economy. Uh, you have to actually manage cosmetic value uh, to make sure that players are continually purchasing new cosmetics. And I would say this, look for the same pattern in Valorant and equivalent 10 cent games. All right, cool. And a few updates from my side. First, a new teaser for the next Halo game was published on Twitter. It's assumed the new game is Halo Infinite, which is expected to launch this holiday season. So definitely for Halo fans like myself. 
uh, something to be excited about. Stillfront, whom we have a podcast with, Eric and I interviewed their CEO, Alexis Bonte. So check out that podcast from our archives if you're interested, but they just raised an additional 114 million euros to expand M&A. So in terms of some of the targets left out there, from my perspective, probably some of the hyper casuals like Voodoo, Quali, others like Hutch, Tactile, and Lydia. So we'll probably see a few more acquisitions also. I do expect to see a few other players kind of enter and uh, step up their M&A activity, including companies like Miniclip, according to some birds chirping around. And let's see, also- Wait a minute, are you saying, are you saying that Stillfront is looking at Woodoo and Quali? I'm not saying Stillfront, I'm saying just generally speaking, the companies oh. out there that are trying to do M&A. I wonder what Eric has to say about this Woodoo and Quali thing. <laughs> They're not going to buy hyper casual. That's against their core strategy, dude. You didn't yeah. listen to when you talked to them, I guess. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. and I, they, they couldn't afford they couldn't afford Voodoo at the insane valuation that uh, sustained revenue, which is probably and forever franchises, yeah. which is not anyway. Voodoo. Yeah, but uh, with private equity coming in and could be working through individual companies, you could be surprised who could who could potentially afford what. Hmm. No, no, that, that is true. That but Stillfront is going to buy Voodoo, but that, yeah, yeah, you can get surprised there. App loving. <laughs> yeah, app, app, app loving makes more sense. That's why I'm surprised that's not on here, but app yeah. loving would make more sense. Oh, I didn't talk about buyers. I talked about acquirees. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right, yeah, moving on. The role. All right. So Epic Game Store hit 61 million monthly actives driven largely off their The Vault campaign, which ran from the middle of May through June 18th. So players were able to get free games like literally free GTA 5, Ark Survival Evolved, Civ 6, and Borderlands, the Handsome Collection. Meanwhile, Steam three months ago hit an all-time high of 24.5 million concurrents at peak compared to Epic's 13 million concurrent users during this last promotion. Uh, That's a stupid it, question. What's what's driving Steam concurrence right now? I don't know. I don't know. I could go take a look at Steam charts, but yeah, I'll look at it right now. But go ahead, continue. Yeah, and one thing here, like notice the titles: GTA Five, Ark, Civ Six, less so Borderlands. These are some of the best retaining games on Steam. So yeah. it, it's it's pretty targeted of which games um, uh, Epic wants to add to their launcher is games that people will actually repetitively play. And I think some of the issues has been with many of the free games that Epic's been launching while amazing indie games. Um, these are typically just kind of like one-off games. These are games that pull people into the launcher repeatedly. Mm. All right. I got a couple of news. Since you guys are dropping all these amazing news, I want to drop something interesting. All right. Tencent is beta testing a live streaming platform in the U.S. So it's clear that Tencent is strengthening its grip on the video game live streaming market around the world. And Trovo Live is the company's attempt to gain foothold in the U.S. And a week ago, the platform also announced a partnership program that is backed by a 30 million in creator incentives. So this could be interesting for Ninja and what's the other guy who are now free agents? Disrespect. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, oh. Uh... <laughs> No, no, not man. Mr. Disrespect. Actually, he'd no, be really no, good yeah, for, <laughs> for a more loosey-goosey Chinese company. <laughs> the second one is, is another, another news from, the, uh, from China is ByteDance prepares to scale its gaming business. 
So they have a gaming subsidiary, which I'm not going to pronounce, and it has yet to develop a blockbuster hit. So the company is changing tactics and signing third-party deals with other game studios. Three mentioned, also difficult names, and you wouldn't know them. Anyways, it looks like the ultimate goal is to develop games internally at ByteDance, which is very different to other social platforms like Snap and Facebook. And it is interesting to see what they're able to achieve with that. I think it's 1.5 billion as their, as their audience size at the moment. Uh, so a lot of, a lot of folks uh, TikToking, and that's a lot of people you can promote games to. So very interesting to see what ByteDance does on this front. And one final update before we roll into news is that Eric and I also interviewed Roblox's Matt Curtis earlier this year. So check out that podcast as well. But one of the questions that Eric posed is what would be the impact on uh, Roblox, the Roblox user base, if a big IP would be hitting Roblox. And I think this is the year that we're actually starting to see a lot more professional developers start jumping onto Roblox and IP starting to come in. And so last week, WB announced Wonder Woman, the Themyscira, the, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, experience. Anyway, it'll be interesting to see all the new content and stuff coming onto Roblox. And at least I know my five-year-old daughter will be super excited to see Wonder Woman on Roblox, but we'll see how that goes. Yeah, hey, uh, quick comment. Adam, thanks for, for reminding me. So. Uh, I took some of the updates and uh, as well as part of the Nintendo that we'll talk about later on in this podcast from this new newsletter that I subscribed to, Master of Meta, Meta or Meta, Meta, Adam, what was it? Master of the Meta. Master of the Meta. Yeah. Abimani from, from Deconstructor of Fun is actually writing to that. So good newsletter. Suggest that you sign up to that as well as to GG Digest, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right, so rolling into the news. Emily, do you want to kick us off? This week I wanted to talk about an article that I thought was really good in Games Industry Biz at the end of the week last week. A guy from named Rob Fahey writing about how the harassment in the industry is not about a few bad apples. And I think you see that with both the news uh, that came out this last week about streamers, about Ubisoft, about Insomniac, but also that this is now, I think, third or fourth wave of news that has come out. Indies last year, Oculus stuff, obviously Riot. And uh, if you talk to me or to most any woman in the industry, they'll tell you we're actually been surprised that more hasn't come out, that you know most women who've been in the industry have lots of stories and so, when something is like this big and broad based, it stops making sense to think just about, oh, you know, this person or that person or that studio, there's something bigger and broader going on that's systemic and to have hope of fixing it, we need to think and talk about that. And I think this article made some really good points about that. And uh, I think a really core bit of what it talks about is that in a system where you have, you know, irreplaceable stars, people um, that are untouchable in combination with a lot of people eager getting into the industry, you're setting things up so that abuse will inevitably happen. And that we need to think about what's surrounding that. And the surrounding that is the culture of individual game studios, it's the culture of beyond that. And we need to think beyond that. And it's not just the sort of sexual harassment and predation of women, it's all tied up into 
larger questions of how workers get treated and how um, people are, how toxic culture often is and how abusive it is and that this is just part of a much larger package. Yeah, from my perspective, it seemed like the floodgates just basically blew open. It seemed like this all kind of stemmed from a Twitch streamer named Hollowtide after she tweeted about a Destiny 2 streamer and basically called him, quote, scum. But you mentioned Ubisoft, the creative director of Assassin's Creed Valhalla stepped down. And it hasn't been confirmed. I know some of the the news articles are kind of indicating, though, that Dr. Disrespect, the reason why he got permabanned is related to this. Emily, maybe I could ask you a few questions because, you know, we're, I think it's pretty clear we're, we're kind of idiots on this podcast in terms of the hosts. And so as male executives- you, know, you need to be more respectful, build up a respectful culture, even in the okay, podcast. Sorry. So that, that's our first mistake in that one. But, you know- You're, as, be, you're being a moron about being a moron. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but as kind of male executives in the games industry, like what, what should we be thinking about or how can we be more helpful- if we want to do something. Yeah, so I'm actually doing a GDC talk about this. Um, okay. I was originally scheduled for March and I actually had decided not to do it because of COVID, because a lot of it had to do with in, in-person interactions. But with the news that came out this last week, uh, GDC got in touch and I agreed to do it for uh, GDC online. And it is, I think that the core thing is for individual companies to change, they're only going to change if leadership wants to change and leadership puts in the work. Otherwise, you know, most people behave, some percentage of people who will always be shitty and there's some people, some percentage of people who will always be good, but most people are sort of moving around based on what their environment is, what their incentives are, what the, the general culture is. And that is most if leadership doesn't change and keeps rewarding certain people, then that's never going to change. So what I'm focusing on is what do leaders need to do to change the culture of the studio. And I'm not going to go into it here because I've got 45 minutes. (laughs) But um, I, I think a lot of it comes down to building cultures around trust and respect and psychological safety and that this is something that all teams should be working towards anyway you know you look at research google has done about what are the most effective team teams are the single most important factor was psychological safety if you looked at the games outcome projects from 2014 or 2015 it had pretty similar results that that was really important and one of the weird things about games is that this culture has built up i think from you know the heavy pressure console release you have to hit you have to hit that deadline everybody is crunching that is just the total opposite of that and i think now with a switch to games as a service there is the possibility of sort of gradual change towards healthier cultures because with games as a service you want teams that are like low drama and low churn and able to you know to sort of effectively work on one title for a really long time. I think it also undermines one thing that you can't have in a studio is people who can't be touched. And you need to be able to fire the creative director and you need to be able to, you know, push back on somebody who is considered a star or there'll be abuse. 
but also the overall bystanders are a really important part of fighting harassment. There's a lot of behavior that is sort of kind of edging up to abuse, edging up to abuse, that if it keeps going unchecked, will eventually end up in, in kind of full abuse. It's, it's a spectrum of behaviors, not one. And other people around saying, you know, intervening and saying, yeah, that's not cool. And just giving that information just quickly, like not cool, not laughing at the joke, even though, you know, we want to, like that the, our human instinct is to, to laugh at everything. And, and think about that. I think that's really important. But I think thinking about any environment where you have one person who has tremendous disproportionate power and everybody else is afraid of them, those are always going to be problematic. And that takes a more, much more top-down fix than something that's sort of uh, bottom-up. And then the final thing is, let's all stop binge drinking at events, um, is probably <laughs> going to be helpful for everybody. <laughs> like, that, that, you know, and there's a line, like, I love a glass of wine, I'm always going to have a few cocktails, but, you know, there are, uh, and I think it, it, you know, studio to studio, event to event, but there is a lot of binge drinking in the industry, mm. and that that is a thing that we probably need to kind of work towards moderating a little bit, and would be, again, I think something that would be good for almost everybody. Right. So I've got a kind of optimistic view on the industry in the sense that because of the new world of social media that we live in, that at least the very egregious acts, you know, everyone's got a global news network in their pocket. Everything can be captured on mobile phone. But I think some of the things that you're talking about, Emily, in terms of like the uncomfortable jokes, uh, someone getting passed over, unequal salaries, those kind of things actually are, are going to be the things that I think we've got to be more careful about. Yeah. yeah, I think I, I, I think that's that's absolutely absolutely it. But I think there's the possibility for the industry to to mature, and I think one of the reasons why you're seeing women come out on social media is because they're starting to have hope that actually something might happen. For a long time, people, if you, it is incredibly unpleasant to tell these stories on social media and any woman who is telling them is really risking very real career harm and if you don't you won't take that risk if you don't feel like something could happen and i think you know something like what happened with riot where you know a lot of stuff came out and they grappled with it you know pretty sincerely and have been putting a lot of work in that kind of thing gives women encouragement to come through to, to come out and then I think that can have a positive cycle but I think there's a you know um, the there has to be a push from from outside like social media from you know the from the press to get anybody any culture to change because the kinds of changes that you need to make for something like this are really uncomfortable. And I think especially at leadership levels are really uncomfortable. And that because you have to realize that you're not who you think you are. And that's a hard, that's, that's a very hard sort of mental hurdle to get over. But I think, you know, if there's the combination of an external push and reasonable economic incentives in terms of like, I want a stable, happy team, it's possible for it to happen. I mean, I think, you know, 20 years ago, it felt like 
crunch was forever entrenched. And while it hasn't gone away, it's gotten really substantially better. And I think some of the, the sort of similar kind of forces of external push and pressure plus, you know, um, wanting more stable teams has, has been able to make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. Personally, I, I would, I would like to think a little bit better about our industry. I understand like reading bad news is, is always negative and I don't even pretend to imagine what is it like to be a female or, or some, or a minority in, in this industry. But personally, I'd like to believe that most people are good and most companies want to be good and that, that it's not always the external push and the sort of a calling out culture that would make companies change, but there would actually be an incentive for them to change. And um, I, I went through and I listened actually to our podcast with Angela uh, Roseborough, who's a chief diversity officer at, at Riot. Yep. And also uh, I recently read the, uh, the Ben Horowitz book of who you are is what you do. And yeah. I think this is a lot about culture and I'm just going to put one quote out of that book. And it mm -hmm. says that culture is not like a mission statement. You can't just yeah. set it up and have it last forever. They're saying in the military that if you see something below standard and do nothing, then you've set a new standard. This is also true for of culture. If you see yeah. something off culture and ignore it, you've created a new culture. So in that sense, I feel like a lot of that has been happening in these studios that are now dealing with these issues is that they just haven't stepped up. And I read through this article and it was very in depth and it was talking a lot about things, but what I failed to see from it is like, how should companies like what you should do? Because it said a lot of, yeah, it's, it, it raised a lot of questions with literally no answers. Yep. So I think uh, a lot of good stuff that, that Angela brought forward was, well, first of all, I just want to mention that about culture, the, the different, the, the issue with management, maybe, I'm not sure, but sometimes it could be the fact that if your company is doing well, and let's say you are a AAA developer with a big shooter and so forth, and, and the workforce that you employ is, is the kind of workforce that really likes drawing guns and, and a lot of kind of violence or whatnot, you might have a culture that, is, that you feel is very good even though it's bad and you know it's a bad culture but it's good culture because we're doing so well yeah. and the problem with culture is that even if you have good culture that doesn't make your company successful and if you have bad culture that does not make your company unsuccessful so from management perspective like on a short term or long term it depends but from yeah. management perspective, I, I, would, I would just i would distinguish between short term and long term yeah um, yeah I would, exactly like on a long term of course but we know several companies like and a bad by bad culture i don't mean necessarily that it's sexist or something like that it might be just the kind of culture that people don't just retain too well or they don't uh, think about working there with fondness. They, it might have been a terrible grind and, and you maybe earned your stripes right. there, and but I think, it's not. And I think those things are correlated. I think that I yeah. think where, where, where you, companies that have a lot of churn are also going to be, tend to be ones that actually, when you get under the hood, yeah. there's, a, there, there's harassment because it's a, a lot of things are, are a kind of clustered and correlated exactly. with the behavior. And I, you know, I, I agree that it, it isn't just a call, a, a call out culture and especially a lot of, a lot of people want to do better on their own. I think um, a company that I look to is Big Huge Games, um, who when they, because they, they got bought and, and, and sort of went under with the whole Kurt Schilling company, I'm forgetting what it's called, like there was a whole, and, and they, the original founders rebought the, bought it and rebooted to be in 2014 and 2015. And they put in a lot of work to yeah, change. Tim Train and those guys. 
culture and they've made, I think, you know, really uh, tremendous progress, but it took, you know, it took sort of consciousness. And I totally agree that that article, like it's setting the frame of it's systemic, but it's not, it's not a to-do list. Um, yeah. And that's actually why I'm doing that uh, GDC talk because, you know, I ran a company for 12 and for 13 years and you know, we changed quite a bit over that. And we had a lot of, um, um, we had different kinds of incidents and I wanted, like, it's gonna include lots of like granular little things from like mm -hmm. managing holiday parties to, um, you know, how you, how you look at uh, exit interviews. And it's about, you know, figuring out a playbook of specific steps people can take that will make yeah. their culture better and make people comfortable to come forward. And that's what we need to get to, because I do think that a lot of studios are going to be willing to do things. They just don't know where to start. And it's, yeah. uh, and, and we need to, to get that information out. All right, guys, it so, sounds so. like we've opened up a pretty big topic. So maybe <laughs> Emily, let's, let's get you back on for like a company culture podcast in the future. If, if you're open to it. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it sounds like we could go on for a long time there, but rolling through the news, the second article that we've got is iOS 14, IDFA is not dead yet, but it's definitely on life support. This is from the Singular blog, and uh, so Singular and basically every other MMP out there has released blog posts about what can only be called the Apple IDFA apocalypse. I mean, you can't really sugarcoat just how big this change is going to be for mobile marketers, but just getting to the news part of this. So during WWDC, Apple announced new privacy announcements related to iOS 14 that will get rolled out in September. And these changes have actually been long rumored, but now it's finally for real. And the big news is really about user de device tracking from iOS 14, which will be explicitly opt in. So for an app to get your device ID in iOS 14 for marketer to properly attribute, for example, your install or purchase in a game, you would need to tap a very scary looking pop-up that says something like, this app would like permission to track you across apps and websites owned by other companies. Your data will be used to deliver personalized ads to you. And as we saw with Fortnite on Google, when you pop up these kind of things, that <laughs> the opt-in rate is, uh, is pretty close to zero. So. Currently, this feature also those are misclicks, probably. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so currently, this feature does exist. It's called LAT or limit ad tracking. But to actually turn on LAT in on an Apple phone today, you've got to navigate like this labyrinth of menus, and it's very, very hidden. But uh, the Apple device ID in the LAT case and what will happen in iOS 14 would essentially be that your device ID will basically be sent as essentially a bunch of zeros. And the one other area of change has to do with Apple's programming interface to handle attribution. So there's this API that is part of what's called SK Ad Network that was built by Apple to allow marketers to get attribution from Apple. So attribution for ads and conversion events in a privacy safe way. So currently, MMPs will get install and post-install cohorted metrics, and ad networks get data about impressions, taps, video views, and spend. So the big change here is that Apple is going to send this data back to the ad companies and not to MMPs. 
and Apple added this kind of timer to send back conversion data like purchase data and other events in a game. But after some time has passed, and most likely that's to further enhance privacy and make you not able to track which specific user has actually made a purchase or other kind of event in your game or not. So my take on all, the, all these changes is that first, it's not entirely straightforward what the impact of all of this will be. Does this make Facebook and Google stronger? Does the timer make it impossible to attribute purchase events to specific users? How will different players in the ecosystem be impacted? Will MMPs all go, you know, despite the positive wording on their websites, does this mean MMPs go bust? And how will other players in the ecosystem be affected specifically? I think one good benefit, however, is that application install fraud basically goes to zero as on, on Apple because Apple will verify installs directly. So anyway, I do think this IDFA issue is really too complicated to cover in depth as part of Twig. So we should probably do something separate and maybe like a pro version and a new version, uh, a new version for guys like me who need like, yeah. you know, like IDFA for dummies and then a, a more like Eric Suford style pro version as well. So yeah. yeah. I felt like I knew a lot about UA and then I started reading all the IDFA thing and was like, I that, I don't know. And just a final message to the singular guys, it's, it, it's freaking 2020 guys. It's, it's <laughs> taps, taps, not clicks, it's taps. So anyway. This is, this is actually really interesting news because it's um, not interesting. This is seismic. I've been reading with a, a, a mobile dev memo, uh, gods of mobile, just asking people. And the, the most interesting part about this is after this announcement, it doesn't, seem that anybody has a clear picture of what's going to happen next. Of course, Eric has a very clear picture because he's kind of uh, on, not Eric, Cress. <laughs> he doesn't have a, Cress is just shaking his no head. no idea what you guys are talking about. Exactly. But, but Suford has been, has been very clear headed in the sense because he's not working for, for, a, for an ad network. He's not working for an attribution platform. So he's kind of in the middle and asking him, watching this conversation unreal. It seems like everybody's kind of pushing their own agenda in the sense like, well, things are going to be all right because you know, this and that. So we might not have to pivot the whole business or close the doors down. But anyway, as a whole, it seems like Apple is making uh, this move towards the, the giant size of this $240 billion mobile advertising cake. Some people wrote 240, some people wrote 70 billion. I don't think they even know what the cake is valued at, but it's big and Apple is wanting a, a major slice of it. And basically what it means is the, the identifier ties into every aspect of mobile marketing, targeting, attribution, re-engagement, et cetera. So without this IDFA, almost all the, all the machinery which modern, modern mobile marketing relies becomes obsolete and in need of retooling. So the implications, and I've been asking from, from heads of UA what the implications are, and they're not even answering because normally they do answer everything here, they don't even know. So, so a couple of implications that I read from Mobile Dev Memo. One is, if a business is wholly reliant on perfect marketing attribution at the level of the individual user, then that business can't weather the depreci depreciation, oh my God, depreciation of IDFA. So basically I was asking, does this mean that games with smaller DAU and very high LTV, so for example, 4X games, are they gonna suffer from this because they can't target directly these, these whale yep. users? That was exactly what my assumption was, is that this, yes. uh, this, this is beneficial for mass market and yep. 
casual and um, you know bad for niche games looking Inc for very very high value users yeah who are um, able to and that, yeah. you know and then any situation like where like it's always going to be good for Facebook and uh, uh, and Google because they have you know they have more ongoing campaigns to with and you know that's just accelerating what the trends were in mobile anyway. But that's yes. those were my two you know broad level assumptions that any change is always good for Facebook and Google. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and the second, uh, second thing that I yeah. kind of learned from this was that Apple will likely work with some selected certified partners going forward. So I, I've seen some photos and, you know, some, some, some of these bigger attribution platforms and, and networks have been somewhat happy about this. Uh, but what does it mean to the vast majority of, of those partners who Apple will not be working with directly? Like, are they all screwed or what's, what's going to happen? So, so a lot of these companies are posting their blog posts about it, but read everything with a grain of salt that is coming from a platform that is, you know, affected by this change because they will try to convert it in a way that it's not as bad. But, um, but yeah. So, so Even if people use their services, they're gonna negotiate a lot harder. I mean, the, yes. the amount that, I mean, we were personally paying at Congregate on attribution was, that was a big, a big number for us and I'm sure is for a lot of people and they're not gonna have that leverage anymore. Yeah, all right, so, so for the really like the most uninformed person in the room, so, this sounds like it's just all the benefit of the big, right? So this is going to really hurt the small guys like more than anybody. And is it true that Apple's kind of like preempting what they think will be regulations that are coming forward? Is that why they're doing this? Because Google's not doing this right now, as far as I understand it, right? Is this a preemptive move to, for this, for, to remove this attribution stuff? I, 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 this is a question. Like, why are they doing this now? Like, what, what is the... Apple has a very sincere belief in privacy or and then and see it as a sort of brand and competitive competitive advantage um, that is at least part of it um, though I'm sure they don't want the European Union writing the rules um, which could right that that's what it feels like to me is that they're basically trying to front run any type of regulation that comes down so that they have already acknowledged it and done something about it so they won't get crazy like government people that don't understand this stuff at all, even more than me, you know, doing, doing policy around this stuff. Um, but anyway, I, I, I would say that this is like when you, when you, when these like privacy hawks and people are going after, you know, Google and Facebook, this is what happens, right? So like they make these regulations that make it really hard for smaller companies to compete. And so who wins Google, Apple, EA, you know, Zynga, like all the biggest companies are going to win in this scenario because they're the only ones going to be afford to do anything about this. You know what I mean? So anyway, that's kind of my quick take of knowing nothing. So I'd like to be a part of any type of discussions on this because it is fascinating from a business perspective. So, all right, Adam, you're on, buddy. Let's move on. Okay. So a uh, former PlayStation boss says AAA game development is unsustainable. Um, mainly talking about Last of Us Part 2. Um, making kind of the, the, the argument that it's taking 150 million plus to develop these games. And keep in mind when we're talking about 150 million, this does not include marketing costs and variable costs, costs of goods sold. Um, so games like Last of Us are dying out. Um, and I think we see these articles come out you know, yearly, pretty regularly, typically alongside articles that actually highlight crunch culture in AAA premium games. 
um, since typically these are pretty hand in hand. Uh, high costs and thinning margins means that there's even more pressure to get games out on quality and on time. Um, but just to talk about this narrative, I think he's right. Um, costs have been rising very quickly since early 2000s at a faster pace than base game revenue for the top games on console. Um, most of the high budget single player games are coming mostly exclusively from Sony since they get the additional console sales and they don't have to give the 30% cut on top of their revenue. Um, Sony, um, Sony doesn't have to worry about that. So the refuges here is that, you know, the, the typical games as service argument post launch revenue, um, is outpacing game development costs. So DLC and MTX, but this so far is really only benefiting games that are already on top. So FIFA's ultimate team, GTA online, rainbow six siege, call of duties, all of these models don't really work in every genre. We've hit this a lot in the past on previous podcasts. And I think a lot of these systems also benefit from the scale that they're at. Um, so smaller games and games that aren't as repeatable in gameplay just don't get the benefits from this. So what does shorter single player games do? Are we witnessing the end of Zelda and the end of single player uh, narrative games? One argument here is to go to subscriptions. And I think this is pretty questionable. So games like this would then become, say, like the tentpole releases in content subscriptions like Game Pass. So it would be the stranger things to Game Pass to try to drive new subscriptions to the platform. And maybe the portion of a, you know, like maybe this game is then used to drive those new subscriptions. But I think the actual value of yeah. these games become very, very hard to attribute. Because, I, I sorry, go ahead. Subscriptions as a, as a savior for this because subscription services want repeat engagement. So they are gonna trend over time to games that drive repeat engagement over kind of single player content too. I think that the the, the same dynamic is, is, is there as well. Exactly, because like if you think about Netflix, what's more important to them, Stranger Things or The Office, right? Like Stranger Things being tentpole and The Office being retention. Um, so when you think of an LTV of a player coming into a subscription, you know, only a very small portion of that is going to go to Stranger Things. The majority of that is going to go to The Office. So like my read is that immersive single player experiences will live on, um, but mostly as hardware movers for VR consoles, et cetera, as well as triple I experiences. So scope will decrease. And I would point to games like Outer World, Senua's Sacrifice, and Control. Um, these were all great games over the last uh, couple of years that really aimed for not necessarily top visual fidelity, right? They used as much off-the-shelf tools as possible to really reduce those costs. Like I think Control even mentioned that their dev budget was sub 30 million, but don't quote me on that. Um, or things like outsourcing to low-cost centers. Like I think everybody's looking at um, Cyberpunk and saying what an incredible game, but of course CD Projekt Red uh, does a, a lot more work in low-cost centers and can actually develop. And I think linear experiences and capping to 10 to 15 hours, like just generally limiting scope. These games can't command the same top of the line budgets that everything else can. And I think as you look at AAA devs, they will shift those bigger budget bets to services. Um, that does not mean that these games will go away. It just means that the P&Ls for these games will be limited to more AAA smaller scale experiences. Eric? You know, <laughs> I can't even get past uh, the hypocrisy of this uh, and go to the substance of what he's trying to say because 
I just can't stand it when these ex-execs call out the games business as unsustainable. Like this guy has been in the business for 25 freaking years, 15 years running the studios at Sony. And then the first time I read this article, I'm like, okay, I know I can find a gazillion articles that says Sean talking about going bigger, better, bolder type thing, you know? And, I, and wait, here it is. February of 2019, article from CNET. Sony, Sean Layton wants fewer, bigger PlayStation games. <laughs> so a strategy in which he put in place for 15 years as a head of studios, he leaves six months later and now is saying that it's unsustainable. I, I, it just it irks me like to hear this, you know, like that, that, that he's doing it. And, and I'm not disagreeing with him. I think he's actually totally right. And you just made some great points here, but it's just a, such a hip, hypocrisy in my opinion anyway. And it's just really annoying. Right. Um, and don't get me started on the subscription thing. I don't think that that's a real viable option either. So, and, and maybe this is why he left. Maybe this is, he disagreed with the strategy of going bigger, bolder, you know, at Sony. And, and again, you know, I want to keep this 12 to 15 hour experiences personally. I think it's, it's a great, great type of game for, for the gamer and stuff. But um, anyway, I, I just, it drives me insane to hear these things. I hear, you know, you get these people who leave companies and that's the first thing they do. And some of what, some of this is actually kind of inevitable anyway, right? So big media like music, television, and particularly movies are just dominated by these massive budgets uh, productions as they mature. That's just the way it is. And mobile is actually starting to see that as well, where the concentration at the top is, is, is really, really high in terms of revenue from the big guys, right? I think mobile is seeing a little bit more in the middle, um, but, uh, but there's still the have and have nots across, across a lot of these industries in, in, in media. So anyway, just mind-blowing to me. But. Well, Eric, maybe the more positive view on Sean Layden's, what you're calling hypocrisy is just like, maybe he changed his mind, right? Like, No, no, this is bullshit. <laughs> he, I'm sure he thought this while he was at Sony, but he's just shoveling this stuff out there. And see, that's the thing that's How killing me is that? that these guys set the tone. They set the tone as to what, what they're supporting from a, from a platform level, what they're building from a platform level. They're setting the benchmark, right? Because they have they do not have to hit the same profitability targets as EA and Activision and Take-Two and the rest of them, right? They are, they're building to a different purpose in terms of supporting the, 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 the platform itself, right? So, and yeah, the minus of 30%, et cetera. So they, they have a different calculus as to what they're building, but they're setting, setting the bar, right? And he was setting the bar for 15 freaking years, you know? And now he says, oh, this bar is too high, right? Oh, this is not right anymore. I mean, it's ridiculous. Like, I, is my wrong? I feel like I am like in this world of outrage that no one else seems to be feeling at all. But yeah, Eric, you need, you need to stoicize, buddy. <laughs> I need to chill out, right? I'm supposed to get mellow as I get older, but man, I just—I think I'm just getting more old and crotchety. Yeah, so I, I choose to take the more positive view that, you know, Sean had an opinion before he's changed his mind. But I will say in terms of like, this is something we've talked about before on the podcast. Video games are incredible value and adjusting for inflation. Yeah, games should be a lot more expensive. 60 bucks does not make sense based upon the, the amount of budget and the de development costs and all that kind of thing. But I... I don't worry so much. It's not like executives make decisions and the market dies or fails based upon what some of these big execs at these game studios make. I, the market's going to correct itself. And so either we're going to get teams that shift to lower cost centers and, and dev studios moving to like other places where they can make these games for that cost or the games will get shorter or yeah. So my belief is that the market just corrects for itself. 
Moving on to Nintendo. (laughs) I'm going to get outraged again. Right. (laughs) Uh, So Nintendo chills uh, mobile ambitions after Animal Crossing success. Um, So the president, uh, I don't know how to prove, Gawa, I guess. He, he basically said two years ago that the smart gnome, smartphone business would be about a $1 billion business with growth potential. You know, building on his predecessor, Awada's promise that Nintendo would release at least two or three mobile games each year. Okay, that was kind of their plan back then. And now uh, the article is saying that they're pulling their efforts on mobile gaming and only supporting the existing games in market and likely only release maybe one game this year. And the article mentions like four key points as to why they are, th- this hasn't been working for Nintendo. The first is disappointing revenue from their key releases with the exception of uh, Fire Emblems, which did quite well. Um, the controls on the s- smartphone are not great, which is really funny actually a little bit, but um, the free to play systems like Gotcha would hurt their brand equity of this franchises and uh, lack of pro- product portfolio fit for Nintendo's franchises. They basically have gone through all the franchises that would have made sense. Now, I have to admit, like, I don't break my arm patting myself on the back, but this is exactly what I said in 2015 when this was announced, right? This is like, it never made sense for Nintendo to bring their stuff on mobile unless it was more of a marketing type idea, right? But back then, analysts were expecting this to be, them to be a top five publisher on mobile with over, again, with over a billion dollars in revenue and growing, driven by what the company was saying, first of all, and also by a lot of, a lot of the analysts that were out there kind of pushing this, this narrative, right? And, and one of those guys is uh, Dr. Is, is that so different than Call of Duty Mobile? Like, would you, would you have expected that Call of Duty Mobile would be as big as it is in 2020? Like, no, uh, no, it's, no, people expected, it, right? people expected it to be like four times as big. Call of Duty Mobile is exactly what I'm talking about as well. Like the expectations were so out, out of whack of what was actually possible. Now they've done better than what we thought it was going to do, uh, both Adam and I, but um, but still not anywhere near what people expected it to do. But you know, Doctor Doctor Sir Kentoto, who's like a real expert on this space, by the way, this was his quote. He saw, "I really think there's a gaming before and after March 15, 2015, in which they announced that Nintendo was getting involved in mobile." Right? This is. Probably the biggest news in gaming in recent years, Nintendo doing mobile apps is an earthquake that will change the entire games industry globally. I mean, an earthquake? I mean, give me a break, right? Like, this is hyperbolic nonsense. Now, I spoke with him after this announcement because I was just flabbergasted at how bold up he was on this. And he's a super smart guy with insane amounts of knowledge of the Japanese market. But he was dead wrong about this one. And, and I, I said that to him at that time, but I mean, he was pretty fervent in it. Now, having said that, the guy was a, has been a genius on Nintendo and has been right about everything else when I was actually a little bit more concerned about Switch. So he got Nintendo right. But now it's just now his, his note on, on this article is, since the release of Mario Kart Tool in fall, fall of 19, Nintendo's pipeline is empty. And he said, in a sense, Nintendo's enormous success on the console reduced the need and pressure to put resources into mobile. Like, that's a fair statement, frankly. But that's certainly not what he was saying when it was an earthquake and, you know, changing the industry forever. So um, I just, my, my fundamental problem with these things and, and the reason I'm getting a little bit incensed is that, like, you cannot, you always take these insane forecasts with the grain of salt. The AR, the VR stuff, these hyperbolic statements always, always end up not being as accurate, right? And I may focus a little bit too much on the negative, and I'll be honest, I'm starting to feel that way more and more. But 
you got to really be op- objective about the opportunities in front of you, you know, when you're looking at this sort of thing and, and realize that there's just a lot of impediments as to what Nintendo could do on mobile, given their culture and given their games and given the platform itself. So that's kind of my big take on this one. What do you think, Joe? Yeah. So just in Sircon's defense, yeah, let's be clear. He, he is an expert on Japan and Nintendo. And I do think that the opportunity certainly existed for Nintendo to be like, you know, who has better gaming IPs in the world? I mean, Nintendo's number one. But I actually think that the only point I want to make on this article is that I think like the, some of the media and investment bank analysis of the comments that were made are, are a little bit too negative. I don't think Nintendo completely walks from mobile, but I do think they slow down. And so, you know, we'll be talking about this Pokemon Unite sort of deal, but I do think that they'll continue to do partnerships and things like that. The only thing that I would have to say is that I think this is a mistake, that I think that focusing on Switch and not more fully embracing mobile for Nintendo as the biggest platform for gaming is a huge mistake on Nintendo's side. Like they should actually be trying to understand how to make mobile a platform where they can deliver games in a better Nintendo-like way and not care about what a lot of Japanese companies do. This is what we, this is what we, forecast and this is where we are so they forecast a billion dollars i think you know based on sensor tower data they're like somewhere between 250 and 300 million so i mean so what if they missed i think they need to be thinking more strategically about mobile so i think that's a big mistake i was gonna say i totally agree that you know what happened what does it look like in 20 years is because i assume that mobile is going to continue to be you know eating away at console share? And can you be the biggest, most profitable company if you're not on mobile? I think the answer in 20 years is no, but in the short term, the answer obviously is yes. Yeah, but to be honest, I was just gonna double down on your your comments there about like Nintendo right now. So why not continue to develop games for mobile without say the revenue goals, right? Because I still think that like, core premise Nintendo games. And if they just take away a lot of the monetization aspects and just look at it as a marketing vehicle, they can actually be quite successful on mobile. So just creating like multiplayer arena versions of some of their key franchises to keep their IP relevant, um, thinking of revenue as a secondary, I still think they can be successful, but that, that's just yeah, my Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I, that's what I was saying in 15. I'm like, look, why don't you just throw your games up there, put them free to play or, you know, tchotchke stuff and and help support your brands and frankly that's what mario uh, mario did super mario run in particular did to kind of refresh the brand when the wii u was like you know you know eating away at at their brand equity um so i think you're right i think it makes sense for them to keep going however and and i have to bail on this i'm sorry but uh uh, i'm gonna contradict anything that (laughs) mishka says in a moment but the uh they're changing their they're changing their tactics right now. Nintendo is becoming a different company. You know, part of the reason that the uh, activist investor invested in them is that they're branching out beyond their traditional methods, right? Their old old uh, kind of like uh, culture, and they're licensing their te- their games to uh, uh, movies and television, and licensing it to amusement parks. They're bringing their content to other platforms that they haven't been doing since since their inception, right? Um, so they are trying to change as a company and, and, and actually, frankly, they should, they should be focusing on mobile as well. And I totally agree with Emily, but, they, but, but their franchises are not working on mobile and their franchises are really not geared toward mobile for a lot of different reasons that we've talked about before. 
Um, so I think it's more likely that they bring their games to console and PC and, and they actually change their tune in terms of that. And that, that's likely where they'll head down and, and, and to, to expand their reach. Um, and maybe mobile will become part of it later when they, or maybe they start licensing it out to game companies that can actually make mobile games that make money. You know, that's possible too. But anyway, I got to bounce guys. Um, we'll see you next week. All right. So let's move on to the last article. Oh, I'm not, I'm not going to say anything that Eric was supposed to contradict to. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Go ahead. So this is what Eric was against. So uh, I, I, again, I, I was reading this morning, I was reading the uh, Masters of Meta newsletter, and I don't agree with, with their um, take on all of the Nintendo's strengths. But anyway, so some of the strengths that they mentioned was the Nin- Nintendo's strength is the control because they control both hardware and software. So it allows to pursue projects that would be, wouldn't be possible if it only worked on half of the puzzle. Second one was focus. So this is what Eric was, was really against. So... You know, traditionally, they haven't been distracted by the potential profit avenues outside gaming um, or outside their core of devices and, and software. But now, as Eric mentioned, they've been doing all kind of other things, the movies, the theme parks, and so forth. Uh, the, the third strength was that they have been traditionally avoiding direct competition. And this is, you know, perfect example is Xbox and PlayStation. So Nintendo has maintained the uniqueness on focusing on the best version of itself. Uh, meanwhile, not competing against Xbox and PlayStation that are usually competing against each other's because of you know similar specs, similar games, and so forth, and that has allowed them to to really be different and uh, yeah, not in direct competition. The uh, the fourth piece was world class IPs, and an article actually mentions that Pokemon and Mario are two out of the top ten gaming IPs in the world. Uh, with brands like Marvel, Star Wars, and Call of Duty. So one of the two other the biggest franchises in the world. And fifth was creating a buzz. So traditionally, when t- Nintendo hits a big on a new device or new software, the benefits are start compounding. So you had a great device, that positive word of mouth, and it leads to more device sales, which leads to more software sales, which again generates more word of mouth and, and so forth and so forth. So I kind of analyzed the strength and and looked at, at their, at their uh, path in mobile. And number one is they haven't been in full control and they can be in full control of mobile. So they have to, they've done cooperation with DNA, uh, not Dena, uh, or what was JK saying before? So, so DNA and Niantic, which was the two of uh, the biggest one, not to mention that they had to work closely with the platforms as well. So they've had much less ownership than they traditionally do. Number two is the, the mobile overall is out of their focus uh, in terms of because of device and game. So, so that, that's why they haven't been putting so many resources for it. Uh, number three is the, uh, the avoidance of direct competition. Well, on mobile, it's, it's almost impossible. Uh, they have only one game that is truly different, which is Pokemon Go. And everything else is, you know, falling into existing categories. They have added a lot of uh, their own quirks and own approaches with Dragalia Lost and and um, Mario Kart and whatnot, but it still has been in the same realm. So they haven't been doing anything genre-defining other than Pokemon Go. Uh, number four is the IP, and for sure they have helped Nintendo. Uh, at the same time, while IP can sell a product, it doesn't really sell a service because these games need to be maintained. They're, they're based on retention. So even though they get the downloads, but they don't get the, uh, the people to stay playing them. And number five is the buzz. So they have been able to create buzz. Again, Pokemon Go is a perfect example. But then again, they've created a lot of buzz with Mario Kart. And in that case, the buzz actually helped to kill the game quicker because of, you know, 
the five dollar subscription that was a huge thing and the pay to win monetization and all the buzz was really around those elements that that helped to you know basically suffocate the whole game so ultimately i think nintendo got outflanked on mobile uh, the performance marketing with the long payback times and ever longer payback times creates difficulty to work with those third-party studios that are relying on revenue share and not having full control of the platform marketing and and you know the games the game development as well is most likely something that that is proving to be pretty much impossible for Nintendo to to cope with so those are my takes the Nintendo phone yeah, Nintendo phone. Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, that's that's the only thing to move forward. So just the uh, the Nintendo phone. All right, last article. So Pokemon Unites could open up competitive gaming to a whole new audience. Um, so Joe, you wanted a new mainline Pokemon game, but we got something else, something better, just for you. <laughs> the Pokemon MOBA uh, for both mobile and Switch. So Nintendo will be working with Tencent and more specifically Timmy the developer of Call of Duty Mobile and Honor of Kings um, on a MOBA. Uh, on the back of the announcement um, that Nintendo is actually walking away from mobile that we just cough, um, that we just covered, this is a pretty big announcement. I think this game actually makes a lot of sense in my point of view. Like Pokemon as an IP is globally relevant, um, especially so in Asia where MOBAs uh, on mobile do particularly well. And I think the IP of Pokemon actually maps pretty well to, to MOBAs. Characters are really well known. Things like damage types and abilities map really well to the IP. And it's likely a very, going to be a very accessible MOBA because of it, much wider than something like Honor of Kings. Um, and I think like the, the point that kind of perked my ears, the, the design bit was that it's not going to work the same way as say a Dota or a League. Um, it's actually really trying to use the IP for creating some interesting um, new ways of playing. The way that you play is actually you capture Pokemon, add them to your side, level them up, and evolve them, slowly training them for new abilities, which I think is actually a great mapping to MOBAs and will feel very different. Um, also, uh, rounds will have a time limit, and the goal will be around points instead of an elimination triggering the end of the round. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see how they can keep the tension up with using time um, instead of elimination. Um, and I think also just by having this whole thing of like capturing Pokemon, you have a lot of implications in the cosmetics model because now you've really deepened that well where all of a sudden it's not just about your favorite character that you bring into the round. It's also about all those random Pokemon that you capture and making sure that those Pokemon look their best. Um, and I think this article really talks about it being kind of the potential way for open up, like to open up MOBAs to a brand new audience, which I think is very likely 10 cent strategy, which I think is smart. Um, it's just a question of whether they can retain the depth of MOBAs while actually retaining that whole new audience. Um, but on paper, this looks like a great match. And I think like Pokemon company, they have burned me so many goddamn times mm. with, <laughs> with a very exciting game pitch that I'd love uh, to, to see work. Um, but I think getting paired with Timmy as an excellent developer, they've got a strong shot here. Um, I think you Adam, see? you need to be prepared to get burned once more. So <laughs> the, here's, here's where I'm coming from. So traditional MOBAs on mobile are not popular in the U S nor in the Japanese market, which are the key markets for Pokemon IP because the audience is, uh, so in my opinion, there's an audience core game misfit and that will likely lead to subpar performance. And where I'm getting this is, I looked at the Pokemon games and look at all the mobile games on, on mobile. So Pokemon's main markets are Japan and the US. If you look at Pokemon Go, 
which is 95% of all the IP revenues. It, uh, so basically 36% of the revenues come from Japan and 34 from the US and the rest of it's, you know, six, five, four, three, and so forth. Uh, we see Pokemon Masters, which is the latest game that launched it about 50 million with 20 million downloads, 50 million net. That was 54% Japan and 24% US. Now, I'm not going to talk about Pokemon Quest, Pokemon Duo, Pokemon whatever disaster. Uh, so let's talk about MOBAs in the West. Uh, we're not going to talk about Vainglory. That was a good try. Uh, Mobile Legends, that did about 200 million net last year or during this, this 12 months with 110 million downloads. U.S. represents only 14% of all revenues. Malaysia, Philippines, Singapore, Indonesia. So Mobile Legends, bang, bang, is actually big in Southeast Asia. You have Arena Valor with a whopping 1.5 billion in, in revenues. Uh, again, US brought only 3.5 million of all Arena Valor revenues. I think that's JK playing and a couple of thousand other people. <laughs> and Japan brought only 1 million out of the 1.5 billion that Arena Valor or Honor of Kings did. And then, of course, you have Brawl Stars, which is the most casual version of MOBAs and probably closest to what pokemon um what's this game called pokemon unleashed unite you know anyway could be called unleashed <laughs> anyway that's probably the next one anyway brawl stars did 320 million net with 110 million installs and interesting enough korea was number one with 15 percent of the revenue u.s about 12 percent of revenue germany 10 and china only nine percent of all revenues of course now china is peaking so that number will change quite rapidly so because of this, I have really doubts seeing how this game is going to work. Looking at it, of course, I haven't played it, but looking at it, it feels like more of a traditional mobile with deeper meta game and that item gameplay and so forth. So it really caters to that mobile audience. But then again, that mobile audience is not mainly in, J in Japan and the US. So that's the Pokemon audience. And I don't think it's going to be a fit, despite the, uh, the, the great execution of the game. Now, of course, I can be wrong. And, and I am wrong a lot of times. So I think Switch is, a, in a way, a wild card, what can happen. But just based on the data, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet this game to be a, a major hit. Yeah, yeah just I mean, keep in I mind with Switch, too. Like, it won't prop up the business case. Like, for it to actually be a breakout, it has to work on mobile. Um, so Switch is not going to be that effective of a wild card. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. This is a title that can go anywhere, and it, it would make sense for us to, like, explain it's massive success or it's massive failure. But I will say that I'm a little bit discouraged by seeing some of the comments on the news articles where a lot of the Pokemon fans are saying that this is not the game that they were looking for. So I do think that Mishka, you do have a point there in the sense that at least what we're seeing is a lot of Pokemon fans saying that the MOBA template as it is, is not something that it seems that they can they can conceive of right now. Now, yeah. Adam mentioned that there are going to be some modifications to the gameplay. And I think that that will be, that will probably help, especially if it fits more of the type of gameplay that, you know, Pokemon players are used to in terms of capturing Pokemon and things like that. But I think for me personally, the biggest concern I have is more about the audience and with these MOBAs and multiplayer PVP games in general that what we've seen is that even though Tencent has, I, I don't know, do they own all of Riot or they, they've got a big you know, investment in Riot, but we're not seeing a lot of the Riot technology in terms of like the backend reputation and behavior 
a lot of that tech in the Tencent games. And so the number one thing that I'm concerned about is in terms of like when you play Arena Valor, and basically that's my favorite game right now until Wild Rift comes out. But you're seeing a lot of racist, homophobic names, comments. And so they don't have a lot of technology yet in AOV and in the Tencent games around griefing, hate, all that kind of stuff. And actually, uh, we do have a podcast that's going to be coming out this week with some of the guys that worked on the back end at Riot and on EVE Online that talks. And one of the things that they mentioned is that the number one reason for churn in League of Legends is around this hate stuff. And so I think that's what, especially for the young audience and as a parent who would like my kids to be playing a Pokemon game, but I'm not going to have them play a game where there's all this like weird comments and, and names and like stuff in chat. So, so it's Tencent. If you're listening right now, that's the thing you guys have to get right as the number one killer besides the gameplay and things like that. Yeah. I, I would say that's exactly the, I think the number one killer of the MOBAs is like, it is incredibly difficult because it makes no sense. If they have that stupid item gameplay, get out of here, get out of here with that item gameplay. We just taking things and it's all stats. It's no skill. Like if it's closer to brawl stars, I'd see the game succeeding better. But if it's that bullshit with like 20 minute session of, of building items and, and, um, yeah, I'm not a fan of MOBAs. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, and when I think of my friends who have played um, Pokemon Go long term, I cannot imagine a single one of them playing a MOBA. Like this, yeah. that is not that that is not how they are playing Pokemon Go. Now it's a different. It's it's a different. You could pick up a different audience, but you know you want the people who've played Pokemon Go for three years, right? Um, and I, I just don't, I don't see that happening. So I have some skepticism too. But do you yeah. think it's like the Pokemon audience is massive, right? Like even Pokemon Go, when Pokemon Go first came out, it didn't even have battling, right? Like, and you thought of who the core audience of Pokemon <laughs> fans who had been picking up Pokemon for years, like that was. That was a very different audience. And all yeah. of a sudden, all the tertiary Pokemon fans who loved collecting all came by and started playing Pokemon Go. So I guess I'm not recommending that this game will be appealing to the Go audience, to that, that segment of Pokemon fans, right? But there are a diehard audience of like who love the battling aspects of Pokemon, right? And I think in terms of these comments, I would not use... Nintendo fanboys and Pokemon fanboys as the litmus test for this idea. Yeah, yeah, sure. And Adam, to your point, I will say this, that one of the things that we have seen is that a lot of kids want to play together. Right now, Pokemon is largely a single player experience. So the, the fandom behind Pokemon and the promise of being able to battle cooperatively playing a Pokemon game that's a, that's a billion dollar title if you can figure out exactly how to execute against that. You guys remember Infinite Crisis? Was that the uh, the DC comic MOBA? Yep, I remember. Yeah, Tur Turbine, yeah. right? Yeah. How did that go? Yeah, but that's a completely different. Yeah, there's there's a lot. You <laughs> that's a very different <laughs> a thing lot behind that story, dude. <laughs> yeah, because keep in mind, like this is Timmy, right? Like you really can't discount the execution side on this, and I think that's a lot of it. It's yeah, I, I'm not. A, I think the execution will be super good. I just. I just don't see, I don't, I'm agreeing with Emily. Like, honestly, Adam, we think you're wrong. <laughs> cool. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> I don't get excited about many ideas here, right? Like, 
But, uh, no, I, I, I well, like to say it's a perfect game for me. Exist. I just don't think they're going to play a, a, a MOBA on mobile, right? Yeah. All right. Well, we'll we'll see what happens, but I will be I will be the first player of that game from when it launches. So. You also play Arena of Valor, so you know your opinion doesn't even count. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, I think that's it, guys. Uh, Emily, any final message for our audience? Where where can they catch you or your GDC talk? We'll make sure to uh, shout that out whenever it comes out. So please let us know about that. But yeah, it hasn't been scheduled yet, but uh, I just found out that I got a 45 minute slot. So I'm happy about that. Uh, awesome. so Congrats. Yeah, check out my GDC talk and then uh, Double Loop Games will be coming out with the title probably 2021. Awesome. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Thanks Hopefully everybody. it's on a MOBA. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. All right, thanks, bye. Bye.